Amen. Go ahead and take your seats here in the room. Live stream, if you're standing, go ahead and take your seats. It's good to have you with us and anyone who are watching on demand this week. It's great to be together as the church. And, um, you know, one of the things I was thinking during that worship, that was amazing. I love those two songs and Christ Be Magnified. It was just like, why are we not singing? Did you feel a little bit of that during that song? It's like, I just want to sing um, during that song. And one thing that I think you could help us out with, because we just look forward to the day when we can kind of sing again here, but it's just really curious, something that's happened, and I, and I recognize the complexity of making up these rules in, in the midst of uh, the COVID world that we live in. But just something that's really interesting is that um, the, the province came out with regulations for worship, along with a lot of other regulations, and, and they stopped short of saying you shouldn't sing in church, the province. But then they said, but we're leaving it up to the individual health units. And so, um, if I could just talk about six health units right now, Durham, York, Peel, and Halton, along with the city of Toronto, which comprises the entire GTA, all of them have a less restrictive singing rule than Simcoe Muskoka. Which is just interesting. And... Um, so we, we have, our health unit has said no, under no circumstances, no singing, even singing under a mask. Whereas in those regions, churches are able to sing with masks on uh, because uh, their health units have been less restrictive about that. And so if I could just impose upon you just to add a, a prayer point, just a prayer point that in time, the Simcoe Muskoka health unit would relax that and allow us to actually worship the Lord through singing um, as we gather uh, together each week. So... Um, until that time, we'll be compliant and um, we'll follow the rules, um, but might not stop us from sending an email or two and asking about that. All right, let's get back into our uh, study here of the book of Romans. Um, and I want to take us to an old playground game, but it's possible that this game is still played in your home in some fashion and it's the, it's the game of mercy. Do you know this game? This game? The game of mercy? Is it, is it played at the Bergman household at all? Sometimes, maybe. And, uh, and so this is two people, usually uh, a couple of boys, or it could be men would do this too. Um, but but um, I've seen girls do it, and you interlock your hands, and then you just wrestle back and forth, trying to inflict as much pain on the fingers and hands of your opponent so that at some point you get them twisted and turned and in pain so much that they cry out, mercy, mercy. And at that point, uh, the one who didn't cry out mercy is the winner of the games, the other wanting to avoid pain and perhaps even a broken digit or two, they call out for mercy and appeal for that. Now, thankfully, uh, God doesn't play the game of mercy with us in that way. In fact, Romans 5, 8, which we'll get to in a few weeks, uh, shows us, it says this, um, Romans 5, 8 says, He, God, shows us, shows His love for us. And when we think about His love, we can think about His mercy, we can think about His grace, we can think about all of that. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the mercy of God. He, he offers us his mercy in the face of pain, not that he's inflicting upon us, but in the face of pain that we have inflicted upon ourselves. And he offers this mercy to us at no cost to us, at great cost to him, but the mercy of God comes to us 
freely. And in today's passage, we actually see that we, we may claim, if you're looking at your notes, the main point of this message, we may claim the mercy of Christ. And I say may, may in the sense that this is an option for us. We can choose to receive the mercy of God or not. We can claim, we may claim the mercy of Christ when we come to realize what that mercy actually is, how God has demonstrated His mercy toward us. And apart from this understanding, we risk an awful lot here. Apart from this understanding, we risk falling into the trap of believing a false narrative about religion and a false narrative about our own ability to earn the favor of God. Yesterday was Reformation Day, October 31st, and it marks that point more than 500 years ago when Martin Luther, the great reformer, nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and it launched the Protestant Reformation. And among the tenets of the Protestant Reformation, we hear these ones, um, three of the five, uh, sola fide, sola gratia, and solus Christus. Faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. And this is no less important to us today. And in fact, we might say these solas to ourselves over and over again. We might be reminded of these from time to time because it's such a battle to not just believe these things, but to continue to believe these things throughout the, the length of our lives that we will constantly be tempted to forget these very important principles. Namely, that it is by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone, meaning we bring nothing to the table to affect our own salvation. And that's what this passage does for us. And in fact, the first six verses of the passage we're going to look at, which form the first paragraph, Leon Morris said this of verses 21 through 26, these verses, this paragraph may be possibly the most important single paragraph ever written because of what it describes for us. It speaks to the power of the gospel and, and this is such a critical word, the substitution of Christ's life for mine. And so I'm going to read the passage here. This is Romans three twenty-one through the end of the chapter, verse 31, and uh, then we'll look at um, these verses uh, line by line. But verse 21 of Romans 3. The Apostle Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one 
who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. All right, we're going to work through that. That's heavy, a uh, heavy passage for us, but let's look at this. I may claim the mercy of Christ when I realize several things are true. I may claim the mercy of Christ when I realize, first of all, that it is righteousness by believing. Righteousness by believing. In other words, I come to have the righteousness of God by believing. I do not come to have the righteousness of God by works, by any effort I put into it. And the righteousness of God simply comes by faith. This is Paul's point. Now, again, in the first verse and a half, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law or apart from obedience to the law. He's talking about the, whenever he says the law here, he's talking about the Bible or the Old Testament. And then he adds this note, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the scriptures were pointing all along, the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to this very thing happening through Jesus, that we would have righteousness in this way. The word points to it. And then, here's what Paul says next, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he uses the word faith and believe here. So the only way you're going to get this righteousness of God is by faith, not by works. It's by believing, not through your own efforts. Now, as I look at that and I read that, that seems super clear to me, and it ought to be clear to all of us that it's not by our own effort that we're getting this righteousness of God, that it's only coming because we have faith in Him, because we have believed. But despite the clarity of what Paul writes here, we get off, on, off base on this so easily. In fact, I would contend that if I asked a hundred church-going people, if I asked a hundred people who are in churches like this, in fact, that would teach about righteousness and salvation and grace and mercy and teach on the soul and all of that, if, if I were to survey a hundred people who go to churches like that, who have heard dozens and dozens and dozens and hundreds of sermons on these very topics, if I were to ask them, how do you become righteous? If I asked a hundred people that question, a majority for sure would answer like this. By doing righteous things, by being good, by abiding by a standard of holiness, by moral living, and by obedience. That's how you become righteous. And you would be wrong. That's not how we become righteous. Romans 3 makes it super clear that's not how we become righteous. But somehow, having heard the message over and over again and read the Scriptures, we somehow click still back into this thing where it's our efforts that somehow are gaining our righteousness. Paul says, nope, not at all. Believing in Jesus makes you righteous, and that's it. Believing in Jesus makes you righteous. This is consistent, of course, with the main theme of Romans, and we're on message five here, but uh, when we go back to message one, and we saw um, as Paul opened this letter, he, um, in verses 16 and seven, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For, it is, it, 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 for in it, the righteousness in the gospel, in it, in the gospel, in this message, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
It's for everyone who believes, not everybody who works, not everybody who's striving after it. Those who believe. And Robert Mounts um, wrote about this. He said this, the righteousness uh, God provides has its origin in what God did. The righteousness God provides has its origin in what God did, not in what people may accomplish. It is received, not earned. It depends upon faith, not meritorious activity. God justifies the ungodly, not the well-intentioned. Now, this is what makes the gospel and what we believe and how we practice. This is what makes this so entirely distinctive and radical from every other religion in the world. Because no part of the salvation plan involves me doing anything to earn it. In fact, Mounts goes on to say that there's no way a human being would even come up with a religion like this. That we wouldn't even think about it. Because human beings default into having to be a part of the plan. Human beings... They can't help themselves, want to be the heroes of their own story. So though though we may have some concept of God providing this for us, we still want to have a part in it. No human being would come up with a plan that excluded human activity as a means of gaining the salvation. And we have not had a part in gaining it. So I may claim the mercy of Christ, that's the first one, when I realize um, that it is a righteousness by believing, and then also, uh, notice this second, glory, glory by uh, confessing. God wants you to experience His glory. He wants you to be a part of His glory. And God's intention and God's active plan, in fact, is to restore what's been lost. God created everything, declared it to be good, declared humanity and everything to be very good, in fact. Sin tainted the whole thing. We made a colossal mess of it. And the entirety of history now is the redemptive plan to get us back to. If we go from Genesis to Revelation, we start out with perfection, we end with perfection. And everything in the, in the, in the messy middle is about getting to that place of perfection again, where God not only restores us and, 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 and eradicates sin from our lives personally, but He restores the creation and the marred creation that was marred by sin. So God, this is God's intention. He wants us to get to His glory. He wants His glory to be fully seen and fully experienced by His people. And in fact, if you um, fast forward to what what will be the last message in this entire series when we get to Romans chapter 8 and to verse 30, and he's talking about salvation, and he says, those whom he justified, which justification is exactly what he's talking about here, how we get saved. Those whom he justified, he also sanctified, and those who he sanctified, he also glorified. And that glorification, that's where God wants to get us to, that we have this glorified body, perfect body, and we spend eternity in his presence without any sin in the way, just enjoying the glory of His presence and all that He has made. And we want to get back to that place. Right now, God's glory is veiled by sin. 
And, and so we get these glimpses. And we say, well, God was so glorified in that. And do you see God working there? And that was awesome to see that blessing and just, just see what God is doing in our church and in the lives of these people. And those are little glimpses of what God is doing, just little, little glimpses of his glory. But someday we're going to see it full throttle because we'll have perfected eyes and we'll be able to look at it and sin won't be getting in the way of that. And the only way to get there, the only way to, to see His glory and experience His glory in all its fullness, the way God intends, the only way to get there, the key to it is confession. It's confession. We have to confess that sin is actually in the way. I mean, we've already spent considerable time, if you've been tracking with this entire series, the last three messages, after we introduced the series, we spent messages two, three, and four just talking about how sinful humanity is. Some of you survived it, right? You were here for three weeks. And hopefully, we have a really good grasp now on the idea that humanity is sinful, and no one's disagreeing with that. And, and if you're not yet convinced of that, I could go over all the material with you again, or you could just go to the website and watch the messages again and be convinced from Romans 1, 2, and 3 that we're sinful humanity. But Paul wants to make his point again. And so he makes his final point here. He states it again with this parenthetical comment, verses 22 and 23. He says, there's no distinction for all this is this like famous verse that once you hear it, you've got it locked in. You learn it as a kid. It's not going anywhere. It's always in there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Romans 3.23. You cannot and will not claim the mercy of God. You won't cry out to God mercy. You won't do that unless you think you need that mercy. And the way that you express that you need that mercy is, is by confessing that you're a sinner. I mean, if you don't think you're a sinner, you're not going to seek forgiveness because you don't think you have to be forgiven of anything because you're not a sinner. But even if you are a sinner, some of us still, again, default into this bad thinking that, yes, I'm a sinner, but my sins aren't that bad. I weigh them off against all the good things that I'm doing. I'm throwing the whole thing in the balances or as, and I don't mean to be offensive in any way here, or as the Catholic Church would practice, you know what, I sinned on Tuesday, uh, I sinned on Thursday, I sinned on Friday, I did this on Saturday, now I'm going to come and confess it, and, and I'm going to say some prayers, and I'm going to do some penance. That's the whole principle, I don't mean to be offensive, that's the whole principle behind penance, is that I can now do something, I can now work to get those sins off the record. And it's completely antithetical to what we're seeing Paul teach us here, what the Scriptures are teaching us. So, so if, you, if you don't think you're a sinner, you're not going to seek forgiveness. But you think you're a sinner and you can balance it off, you're also not going to seek forgiveness. You're not going to be confessing this. You're buying into the whole world's way of seeing things where, you know, they're saying you can do it, you have it in you. And no, you can't do it and you don't have it in you. But if you think you do, you're never going to confess this. And come to Jesus. In fact, later Paul's going to tell his readers, and, and of course us, Romans 10, 9, and 10, it's outside the scope of this series, but in Romans 10, 9, and 10 he says this, and you're going to see the parallel now to what we're talking about here in Romans 3. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Confession, belief, confession, belief, the two things we've just talked about. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified or saved, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. These are, these are all the concepts we're talking about here. This is the way we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And God's glory, which is something you should really want to experience. There should be no one here who's saying, you know what, I don't, I don't really care about God's glory. I, would, I hope I never see it. We should really want to see the glory of God. We should have like a, a desire bubbling up inside of us. God, I can't wait till that day when sin just takes the veil away, takes all the fog away, and I can see you for who you are. I can't wait to get to that day. We should all want that. But it's only going to come if you confess that you're a sinner in need of the Savior. All right, here's the third. I may claim the mercy of Christ when I realize that it is a redemption by grace, redemption by grace. And we're going to go deep into this matter of grace um, in a few weeks when we look at Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at a whole message on grace. But for now, uh, Paul says that the one who is a confessing sinner, verse 24, is justified, notice, is justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we can't too quickly pass over this word redemption. You should highlight it in your Bibles. It's an important aspect of the gospel that's essential in terms of understanding what we're talking about here um, when we use the word substitution, which we're going to use, we're going to explain about that in just a moment. But in redemption, we have a commercial term. So if you hear the word redemption and you think you know, retail, you think commercial, you think bills to pay, you think coupons. You know, if I could redeem this coupon, I can get half off, okay? That's exactly the word. So the, the writers of Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are using a commercial term to help us understand the transaction that's taking place when Jesus gives His life on the cross for us. So we have a redemption situation going on here. Jesus Christ paying the price for our sin on the cross in order to redeem us. This transaction is made. And in fact, it's reinforced by the fact that in John, John's gospel, chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus is on the cross. And just before he dies, he says three words, three words in English. He says, it is finished. And when he says it is finished, he breathes his last, he dies. In other words, he's completed everything that he came to complete. He's fulfilled everything. But it is finished is the word, literally, paid in full. It's like the invoice has been presented. He takes the stamp and he stamps it and says, paid in full. My sacrifice on the cross has now paid the price for the sins of humanity. It's a transaction. He redeemed us. Our sins paid for by Jesus at zero charge to us. And that's grace. The undeserved and unearned favor of God. We didn't do anything to deserve Him paying the bill for us, but He paid it. And if you've been saved... You must continue to live in this grace for the remainder of your life. It's not as if the grace saves me in the moment and now I'm saved by grace, but the maintenance of my salvation is by works and by my efforts. Oh, no, no, it's grace every day. Every day that I'm walking with Jesus is a gift from Him. Every day is unearned and undeserved favor from God. 
I should never once think in, in the entire length of my life that I'm contributing anything to my own salvation. It's all Jesus all the time. And to believe otherwise is to minimize the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. It's to say, you know what, Jesus, your sacrifice on the cloth, that was a cross, that was enough to save me, but it's not enough to keep me. And of course it was enough to keep you. In, in fact, what it is, if we can come back to the commercial terms and the understanding here, it's as if Jesus went to the counter to pay for your sins, and he laid the money on the counter, the full price for your sins, but you're coming along saying, hey, Jesus, hey, I know what you did there, uh, that when you died on the cross for me and you, you went to pay the bill, you went to pay for my sins. I know you, you put the money on the counter, but I just want to let you know, I slipped a little bit up there while you weren't looking, and I just paid a little bit of the price myself. I know you didn't. I know you can't. But I mean, that's the thing. Someone has to pay the price for your sin. It's either going to be Jesus or you, and you don't have enough to pay it. So this is the only way that it's going to get paid. You don't have enough. You don't have anything to pay it. Your redemption came by grace, a free gift from Jesus to you. And like any gift, it simply must be received. But we have a massive problem with gift giving and the understanding of gift giving. And yet here it is right in the passage. It comes as a grace gift to us. Both of these words are used. I mean, Christmas is coming up and the the deal with Christmas is that I give you a gift, but you give me a gift. Christmas is all about reciprocity. We, we just make sure that everybody gets about the same and, and that when I give you a gift, you give me a gift and, and you have these agreements even with your own siblings that eventually you get to the place where you go, you know what, I won't buy you a gift and you don't buy me a gift. You get to that place yet? Vilnius are there. We're there, right? And, and so Christmas is all about reciprocity. So we don't understand gift giving from Christmas. Even though it's all about gift giving, we don't get it. So then you say, well, like a birthday. On a birthday... You get a gift, and, and you don't give gifts on your birthday. You just get a gift. You just open it. You get it. You receive it. But here's the problem with your birthday is you receive all the gifts on your birthday, but then what happens? It's their birthday. And now all of a sudden, you've got to remember what they gave you so that you can buy them something of equal value. You see how we don't understand gift giving? We don't know how to simply receive a gift without trying to pay it back. And yet here it is. It's grace. It's redemption by grace. You cannot claim the mercy of Christ until you simply receive it. And don't even try to pay it back. All right, see where we're going with all this? I may claim the mercy of Christ. Next, when I realize that it is, this is the heavy one, okay? Forgiveness by substitution. And substitution is the key word for this message. Forgiveness by substitution. In fact, just write down this little phrase, not original with me at all, but uh, just write down this phrase, Christ in my place, okay? Christ in my place. And that's the concept that we're looking at here. And so speaking of Jesus, look at this in verse 25. Speaking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a, here's the word, propitiation. You can highlight that, underline it, circle it. 
If you're carrying um, the ESV, you see the word propitiation there. If you're carrying a New International Version, which is common for a lot of people to, to carry and to use, you're going to see a phrase there. Instead of propitiation, you're going to see the phrase sacrifice of atonement. And if this is the definition, if we have the lane of the definition of propitiation, here's what I would say about this um, phrase sacrifice of atonement. This is the lane of definition and sacrifice of atonement just kind of like here just a little bit off the lane. And in fact, the NIV translators knew this, and they knew that there was a difference between the two. And if you're carrying that translation, you can look down in the footnotes and see this is what they were wrestling with, because in the footnotes, here's what it says. And this is a definition of propitiation, that a God put forward as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin. That's propitiation. That's the lane, okay? One who would turn aside the wrath of God taking away sin. That's the better, more precise sense of it. So, the whole verse here, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, to the word propitiation, because I want us to fully get this word. It's arguably one of the most obscure words in the Bible itself. It's found six times in various forms in the New Testament. Its meaning isn't immediately obvious, and and the word is rarely used. Like, I could survey the crowd right now and say, how many people used the word propitiation in the last week in a sentence? And and none of you would reply yes. And, And probably if I went back a year or two or five, you'd all say, you know what, I've never used that word in a sentence at all. So, it's a pretty rare word, and it's rooted... So, six times in the New Testament, one of them is in our passage today, and it's rooted in an Old Testament ritual performed on the Day of Atonement, but it's also a concept that's known outside of Judaism in other religions. And the word related to this, what needed to be done, and you see this in the NIV footnote, but what needed to be done to appease a deity of any kind. That's the general understanding of propitiation. What do I need to do to appease a deity of any kind? Now, Ligon Duncan, bringing this down uh, for us now, says this, propitiation means averting the wrath of God by the offering of a, of a gift. It refers to the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment for our sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that, that's spot on. Okay, that gives us full clarity on what this word means. And so having like, gained that, we got the definition now, verse 25 continues. He said, this propitiation was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He'd passed over former sins. So I don't want you to think, you know, like, like um, God's wrath still has to be appeased, but for all these hundreds of years, God's forbearance, His restraint, His long-suffering, He's just been kind of waiting and super patient as His entire redemptive plan plays out. But God's been forbearing for now, and He's been passing over sin, not judging it in the way that He really wants to judge it and will judge it eventually. Because He's bringing out this plan for a Savior who's going to potentially redeem us if we would accept it, potential only in the sense that we would have to accept it. So verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time, right when God intended, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the whole intent is to save us in exactly the way God planned, in the propitious way that would satisfy His wrath through the substitution of His Son for our lives. That was the only way. 
was that that gift would come to us. So that's kind of like the base definition of it. Now I want us to look, because we're not going to get here again. So I, I want us to look at the other five New Testament verses that actually help us understand this. I'm going to group them into three, um, three groups here. And the first one takes us to the gospel in Luke chapter 18, verse 13. And again, the six uses of this word are, are a, more of a family group, but three different kinds of uses. Uh, family group of the word. So in Luke 18, you have this tax collector and this religious guy, this Pharisee, who both go to the temple to pray. And um, when they go to pray, the Pharisee is pretty pompous and full of himself, and the tax collector comes pretty broken. In fact, it says this, the tax collector was standing far off. He wouldn't even come that close, and he, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Like I mean, he was just like head bowed, humble, and he beat his breath, and he was saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that word merciful is the same family group as propitiation. God, be merciful to me. God, God, please. Um, let your wrath be satisfied. Show your mercy to me, is what he's saying. If, this was, if, this, if he was playing the game of mercy, he, this is the point at which he would be calling out for mercy because he'd be in such pain. He'd call out mercy and this spiritually desperate man is saying, help me, okay, be merciful to me, help me be propitiated. Now, there are a couple of other New Testament examples that are very similar to this one, but he's throwing himself on the mercy of God because he knows he has no other play. And that's, that's the desperate, what we need to hear in Luke 18, that's the desperate, um, utterly helpless place that we all need to get to before we can exercise faith and be reconciled to God. Every single person needs to get to the place that this tax collector gets. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And in fact, the second man who came, the, the, the problem with this Pharisee, this religious guy, as he comes, is he, he's, he, he just thinks that he's got it all going on. He, he's very self-sufficient. He's doing a lot of religious things, and he thinks that all those religious things that he's doing, those are the things that are gaining him the favor of God. His self-sufficiency kept him from God. He didn't really need God. And until you need Him, until you really need God, until there are no other options for you, and you've been brought to the brink. Until you get to that place, you cannot be forgiven. Because God is not one option among many. He's not just, he's not just one way to live your life. He's the only way. And you have to be broken, truly broken and desperate, to get that. Well, secondly, this, a second um, way that the word is used, it's uh, two uses actually in the book of Hebrews, which is actually a sermon transcript. It was a, a preached sermon. Hebrews 2.17, the preacher says, therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So, speaking about the incarnation, now Christ becoming flesh and dwelling among us, excuse me, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, notice, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, to do the things that needed to be done to show the sacrifice was necessary to appease the wrath of God. To sacrifice, we're talking about Jesus sacrificing his life for mine, for Jesus to sprinkle his blood, we're going to talk about this in a moment, to sprinkle his blood on the mercy seat, so to speak, and to appease the wrath of God. 
And then the preacher, not content to say just that, he, he brings the word back again a little bit later in the sermon, and he says this in Hebrews 9, 5, that, that we see now the origin of the concept of propitiation in Judaism at least, where he says above it, above what? Above the, above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant. Let's show a picture of that right now, in fact. And you have the cherubim on top. This is the lid on top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so the preacher's saying here in Hebrews 9, 5, we see the origin, okay, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, and the mercy seat, the, that word is the place of propitiation. That's the word that's used there. So the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the temple or in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, only one person, one time of year, can ever go into the Holy of Holies. And when that person goes in, it's the high priest. When he goes in on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, he, he goes in to the Holy of Holies and he sprinkles blood on the mercy seat, on the place of propitiation. And he makes atonement for the sin of the people. And so, the priest, and this is so important for us, the priest had to do this every year. Every year on Yom Kippur, he had to go and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, on the place of propitiation to make atonement for the people. But when Jesus Christ came... It was no longer necessary because, as the preacher in Hebrews says four times in the sermon, four times he repeats himself, that Jesus Christ did this for us once for all. It's no longer necessary for the high priest to go into the holy place and to sprinkle because now, now Jesus Christ had done this in a full and complete way for all of us. He was the grace gift. He became the place of propitiation. He sacrificed His life to appease the wrath of God. In all other religions, you have to bring the gift that reconciles you to the deity. You have to bring it. You have to pay for it. And you have to keep bringing that gift repeatedly throughout your life to continue to appease the deity. But with God, not only does He say, you don't need to come with that gift, you don't even need to provide that gift, I've come, I've done it once, it's for all, and also I'm providing the gift. No other God does that. And I think about Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac and Just before he did, of course, God provides the ram. God provides the gift. God provides the sacrifice. And that a picture of what God did in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to give his life on the cross for us. God gave the gift. Once for all. The final two references are both of the Apostle John in his first letter, uh, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, it's available for everyone. And then a little later in the letter, 1 John 4, 10, he says, "In in this is love. And again, very consistent with what Paul is saying, the Apostle John says, not that we have loved God, 
Not that we bring anything to the table. Not that we just came to ourselves and said, you know what, I just love God today, I'm going to serve Him. It's not that. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice, the substitute who would appease the wrath of God, the propitiation for our sins. And so Kevin DeYoung says this, propitiation is used in the New Testament to describe the pacifying, placating, or appeasing of God's wrath. Because of this propitious gift, our sins can be removed, our debt can be paid, our relationship restored, and our legal status irrevocably altered. I am forgiven, and I can claim the mercy of God because Jesus Christ substituted His life for mine, mine and I'm no longer under the wrath of God. It's been appeased by that gift. All right, do you feel like, feel like I got a handle on it? All right, let's just look at the last one here. Finally, I have to see that it is obedience, obedience by faith. Again, the ongoing Christian life is still by faith. And Paul asks a series of questions here uh, to close off this chapter in verse 27. He says, what then becomes of our boasting in light of everything that we've heard in the first three chapters of Romans? Do we have any reason whatsoever to boast? No one, no one can look and say, you know what, I'm gaining God's favor. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. No one can claim any of that. Paul says, absolutely not. It is excluded, he says. Now, in the, in the context here, he's still continuing his assertion that uh, the Jews do not have a favored status. And in verses 27, the latter part of 27 to 30, he's making that point again, that the, the Jews have no ground to stand on in terms of privilege. And the church in Rome, like all of the church at that time, as it was growing and, and the gospel was spreading, churches were being formed and they were made up of both Jews and Gentiles in the same church. That was brand new for the world. And he really wanted the Jews to understand that just because they had had the Scriptures and the Messiah had been born in their, in their nation, that they were not privileged in any way with respect to how you got into a relationship with God, that it still was by faith. And he makes that point in 27 through 30. So they don't have this privileged standing. They can't boast in anything. But it's not just a Jewish problem here. I don't think I need to convince any of you that as human beings, all of us, have a boasting problem. That's why Paul's spending so much time talking about all of this. Because we still want to think that we bring something to the table. So Paul drives his point again that salvation is a free gift of His grace. Again, a theme we're going to come back to in chapter 5. Then he says in verse 30, God is one who will justify everyone. He's going to justify everyone through faith alone. And before he closes this section, he also wants us to know that the one who's propitiated will want, as a consequence, to devote their life to obedience and service to Christ. That the obedience and the service after I come to faith in Christ is also by faith. I want to live this way. I want to worship Him. I want to serve Him. I want to give to Him. I want to do whatever I can for Him. But while I'm doing those things... I can't for a minute think that I've earned anything by them. We need to get out of the, the, the thinking that anything we do with God is transactional. The transaction has been made by Jesus. We're saved by grace. And so, he goes into the Scriptures then. What's the point of the Scriptures? 
Everyone who's propitiated will want as a consequence to devote their lives in obedience and service to Christ. But do we then, verse 31, overthrow the law by this faith? Do we then, you know what? If it's all by faith and Jesus did all the work, I can toss out the Bible now. Don't really need this with all of its laws, its rules, its regulations, its precepts. Don't really need that. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Do we toss out the Old Testament? Because we saw in the last message, we saw that the point of the Ten Commandments, the point of the law of God, the point of everything that had been written in the Old Testament was for one purpose, and that was to show us just how sinful we are and our inability to actually keep the law. If you look at the first five books of the Bible, we can't keep the law. If you look at all the historical sections, you realize they didn't keep the law. They couldn't keep the law. If you look at the prophets, you realize the prophets were all preaching and no one was listening to them because no one could keep the law. And so, should we throw out the law? Should we throw out the Bible? And the answer is a resounding no. This does not mean that we're off the hook in terms of moral obligations. Paul says, verse 31, partway through, he says, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. We live by the word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, he said, don't don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so we live by what the Bible says. We obey its precepts. We strive as grace recipients, as faith filled, glory-bound, propitiated believers to live in alignment with God's Word, having claimed the kindness of His mercy. We want to live this way, out of gratitude and out of love for the Savior. And so the question that this message is really asking is, have you claimed His mercy? And if you have not yet claimed His mercy... Cry out to him the way the Pharisee cried out, the way the tax collector cried out to him. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Let's pray. Father, you have been um, and are abundantly kind to us. And Father, if we were to confess, um, we know that passages like that are in the Scripture, like the one we've just studied, because, Father, we're thick and we miss the point. And we do, seriously, Father, at times want to be the hero of our own story. We want to bring something to the table. And God, I pray that there would just, for every believer here, there would be greater clarity today about this that we would understand that we bring nothing, that you bring it all. And in your kindness and your mercy and your grace, you offer it to us as a gift. So God, help us to really understand that today and always. But God, I pray again for those who might not know Christ and who are either here in the room or on the live stream or watching on demand this week. God, I pray that you'd be stirring in them right now to have that crisis with you to come to a full realization of their sin and God to throw themselves in your mercy to long for and desire for the glory that's to come for us to be saved by the work of Jesus Christ God thank you for this time that we've had together as a church 
be patient with us, forbear with us as we struggle and, and wrestle with these things. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.